So the telltale sign is there. I'm wearing a tie, which means Dave is not here. Um, it's the easy kind of tie. Um, they're, they're so cool. Bolo ties are so classy and so cool, and they're the easiest possible thing. I don't want to have to deal with like a knot in the morning. Man, it's too early for that. It's a complicated thing. I get it like halfway. It's not long enough on one end, and it's just a, it's a bother, so I go with the bolo tie. Anyway, I'm Peter. In case you don't know me, how's it going? Um, let me pull up my notes here. Uh, we, you may have noticed this, uh, especially, you know, depending on how old you are. Maybe you haven't noticed it if you're quite young, but I've noticed that we, we take more pictures today than, like, we ever have before. Look at that ridiculous thing, first of all. I went to Disneyland, they don't even let you take those things in. And, well, they should not. That is ridiculous. Anyway, <laughs> some of you maybe have one. I, I like selfie sticks. Anyway... It's my opinion, but we take a lot of pictures. That's indicative of something that's it's really um, historically kind of a new thing. Like even you know when we first came up with cameras, it took them forever to even take the picture. Is why like in the old style pictures, everyone looks just so mad for some reason. It's because they had to sit there for like the length of a doctor's appointment just to get their picture taken, and they didn't even get to see it right away. That's I'm not even that old really, and I remember when I would have to take pictures. I would go to camp. I remember I would go to camp, and I'd take a little disposable camera, and I'd take all these pictures, and I would, some of y'all aren't going to really feel this, I, I would take a picture and then not be able to immediately look at it and see if I liked it or not. I had to wait, in some cases, up to an hour. I know. And that was the quick one. But um, as technology has progressed, we take a lot of pictures. I take a lot. Of, I, took, I think I took a picture yesterday, probably two. Who knows? Um, I... I took a picture of a soda can the other day. That's how mundane the things are that we're photographing. To be fair, though, it was soda that like, I thought was discontinued like in the 90s, and it's delicious, and I was very excited, and I wanted to share it with the world. We do that. We take pictures of moments, and then not only do we just keep them to ourselves or put them in a photo album, maybe we do those things, but also, overwhelmingly, we share them. Social media, um, you might be familiar with the term, uh, Facebook, Instagram. Instagram exists solely for sharing pictures. Facebook, you can share all sorts of mediums. There's an entire social network just to share the pictures that you took. You put little fancy filters on them, make them look like you took it back in the Wild West or whatever. And it's this whole thing. We are so into pictures, taking them and, and saving them and sharing them these days because I, I think we focus a lot on moments uh, as people. We... We are big fans of moments. We want to capture moments. That's what a picture is. It's a moment that we took and we're like, all right, I can always look back at this moment if I want to, and I can remember what was going on there. And, and that's a good thing. Until you get a little too far with it, because, see, sometimes we tend to romanticize moments. Um, Think of you know, the moment you uh, first met your true love or the moment you first arrived in a new town or something like that. You know, these, these, these sound like things you might hear in a, in a TV show, in a movie, you know, that moment. Uh, some of you guys remember the Mary Tyler Moore show, the end of the opening credits, she like, throws her hat in the air and it freezes right there. A lot of those freeze frame things at the end of TV shows that they used to have, that was about capturing a moment. You sit in that moment for a second while the credits roll and you take in that moment. We really, really like moments is what I'm saying. Um, I'm going to try not to say that word too many more times this morning because it's even starting to lose meaning to me. You know when you say a word a bunch of times and suddenly it just starts to sound like gibberish? It's getting there. So I'm going to cut out the use of that word quite so much, but you get what I'm saying. And I think it's unhealthy to romanticize moments, especially um, as, as Christians. When it comes uh, into the, the, re- the realm of our personal walk with God, um, we will especially romanticize, as Christians, and I've experienced this myself, the moment of salvation. If you have spent most of your life in church, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If not, uh, maybe you still experience this, where we tend to take the moment of salvation and, and we, we dwell on we, 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 we romanticize it, just like I was saying. I mean, I, uh, in the first Bible that I had, which is still somewhere in my house, I swear, um, I wrote down in the, in the front cover, you know, the date and time that, uh, I, was, uh, that I first came to Christ, uh, said the sinner's prayer, if you will, so you use some more churchy jargon, but you know, a lot of you probably did that as well, wrote your name down and, you know, the, the time and date that you were saved and who you were with. Uh, we, we, we are very much about that moment because it's so important. You know, salvation is what we push 
for so much in, in our Christian culture. But what if I told you that it's not actually a good thing to fixate on that moment, and it's not actually a good thing, and it actually can be damaging to our relationship with God and our ability to disciple others if we focus too much on and romanticize too much that moment. And then what if I told you that I'm not just the one saying that, but I'm just telling you what's written down right here. This is how I bring you into the verse we're using today, which you've already seen once this morning. Uh, This is Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 2. I didn't write down what what page number it's on in the pew pew hymnals. Don't open your hymnal for a Bible verse. The Bibles. I don't know what number it's on in there, but uh, it's Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and I'll be reading uh, out of mine here. Uh, 803, page 803, if you want to find that in the Pew Bibles. Thank you very much. Um, Here it is. I'm I'm actually going to give it a little bit of context. I'm going to start at the beginning of chapter 12. And this is Paul writing to the church in Rome. Romans, there you go. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies uh, as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now here's the verse we're going to focus on. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, This was a thing when I was in school, uh, and probably has been when everybody in this room was in school. I think this is a timeless thing that keeps coming up and will exist far long after I'm... I mean, I'm already done with school, but... When I am old, I'm sure kids in high school and middle school will still be experiencing this. Uh, there's always uh, factions within a public school, at least that, that I've seen, due to my experience. There's, you know, obviously there's the geeks and then there's the drama people or whatever. I want to focus on two specific factions, though, uh, conformists and nonconformists. Um, now, when you think of these things, there may be an image that kind of crops up in your head, and it might look a little bit like like this. Um, Is that Tim Tebow and Sid Vicious? I don't know, maybe. Who's to say? Point is that on the left is somebody that you might, at least judging by the style of the clothing he's wearing, is somebody that you might describe as one of the conformists, or you might use the word preppy. That's what we use. The polo shirts, usually with a a popped collar for whatever reason, I guess to keep the sun off of your neck. I don't know, but it was always very fashionable, very stylish. They had the uh, the right emblem, you know, on their shirts or their pants or whatever else. They shopped at exactly the right stores, and that made them cool, right? And see, I was, I was part of that nonconformist crowd, because we would look at these guys, and they probably wouldn't call themselves conformists. They'd just call themselves cool, possibly popular. We'd call them conformists, man. I was the guy on the right there. Sometimes I still am. I have a, I have a jacket that looks a lot like that, actually. But um, I wouldn't wear my hair like that on Sunday, so you've probably never seen that. But... The point is that I was, I was those guys. We would look at the, the fella on the left and be like, really? You're just going to wear whatever your corporate marketing overlords tell you to wear? Man, I'm my own person. I know exactly, you know, I know exactly who I am and how I dress is not, it's not, a, uh, it's not conforming. Sure, it's exactly what they're selling at the stores that market to people like me and sure, most of my friends wear just about the same stuff and have the same hairstyle. But, but I am not a conformist. I'm a non-conformist. You see what I'm driving at here. The point is that in their rush and in their are, uh, I guess, I can't separate, <clears throat> separate myself from that. I'm going to drink some tea. That was, wow, that sounded hoarse and terrible. Yeah, it's tea this morning. Not because I'm speaking, but because we're out of coffee in my house. It's the backup. Anyway, uh, you see what I'm driving at? You're not, when, when you go that way, in, in your rush and zeal to not conform, you find the nonconformists and just conform to them. It's just a different pattern. You're still choosing to conform. Uh, maybe you'll look cooler one way or the other way, but uh, maybe it's just your personal taste. A lot of us grow out of this, this whole conformist, nonconformist stuff. Those two men, I think, are adults at the time of the pictures being taken. Um, and they just choose to dress that way because I think they probably just choose to. They think it looks nice. Um, we grow out of it, mostly. Mostly we grow out of this. But some facets, some aspects of it uh, sometimes remain. And sometimes it, it creeps its way into our faith, uh, into our religion, 
Um, if you remember the guy who, who yells so much and so loudly about not conforming, man, is usually pretty conformist himself. Uh, this carries over to Christianity. This carries over to really any, any religion. If you're the louder somebody is and the more they need you to know how much they don't conform to this world, how very righteous they are, and how they know exactly what to do in order to not conform to the patterns of this world. Yeah, I know how to, I know how to not conform to the patterns of this world, and I can show you how to do it too. You just got to do everything exactly how I do it, you know? Conform to me, but only because I know, I, know what's, I know what's better. You'll see this in a lot of different areas. Somebody who sticks, who takes pride. This, the issue is pride here. Somebody who takes pride in how very strictly they stick to the, you know, uh, they adhere to the tenets of their particular denomination. If they take so much pride in that, that's not something to take pride in, really. You're conforming to a pattern. I'm not saying it's bad to be a part of a denomination and stick to the distinctives of that denomination, but if you begin to take pride in it and start to make sure everybody knows that how right you are for sticking to that, that's where the pride comes in. That's where it becomes problematic. Or if you're, you know, you're super prideful about how, how uh, strongly you stick to the five points of uh, Calvinism or however many points Arminianism has. I don't know, I went to a Baptist college. But... The, that was a denominations joke, and nobody got it. That's okay. Um, but uh, worship style, that's another one people will stick to. You know, I know exactly we are supposed to, I, Sorry. I'm going to settle on a thought and carry it through to the end. I worked with somebody in ministry at a church whose name shall remain undisclosed. It's a great church, actually. But this one particular instance kind of got me a little bit because um, we were doing youth group, and I was working with the middle schoolers, and I played some music that had some pretty uh, heavily distorted guitars in it. One might call it hard rock, uh, but it was by a Christian band. Uh, all the words, of course, were all very you know, scriptural, very Christian, very, uh, very, very good, pure words, but they were sung with a bit of a, an aggressive edge to them. And uh, this one parent volunteer comes to me and he asks, what, what, is, what is this music, what is this playing? I said, oh, it's a Christian band, and he just cuts me off right there. No, no, this is not Christian. This is not Christian. Do you know what they're saying? No, this is not Christian. This isn't, off, this isn't honoring to the Lord at all. I know it's not. You need to turn it off right now. Now, I was in college, and I was an intern, and this was a parent volunteer, so I was like, will do, sir. But I really wanted to have a conversation with him about, you know, why, why it is that he knows immediately how this is not honoring to God, but that's, that's what I'm talking about, how strictly you stick to it. And I've been like that before myself. I think all of us have fallen into this trap at one point or another and probably will again because we're humans and failing at stuff is kind of one of the things we do best. That's a little, it sounds like a bit of a bummer, but it's actually just realism. We fail all the time. It doesn't matter how many times you fail, it's, it's how many times you get up and keep going. It, that's a cliche for a reason. But pride is the problem here. Um, in Matthew uh, chapter 6, I want to say verse 5, um, Jesus tells you, don't be like these, these hypocrites, you know, these, these guys who stand on the corners and pray with many, many words loudly so that everyone sees them. Don't be like that. That's pride. And those are the people who were conforming. Those, are, those were the Pharisees who knew all about conforming. Oh, they knew exactly what clothes to wear, where to have their tassels, how long those tassels needed to be, where, the, where their beard needed to grow out to. I, I don't know if they had the curly things that modern Orthodox Jews have today. Who's to say I'm not a Jewish historian? But they knew about conforming. They were good at it. And they were the loudest ones around. Standing on the corner, please look at me as I pray. Oh, God, holy God. Are they watching? God, I pray. And you know... And, and you've, you've met someone like that, and you may have been that person at some point. The loudest ones are the most prideful and probably the most conformist. And that's still a pattern of the world. That's still a worldly pattern. The, these Pharisees who were pretty sure they had it all figured out, on numerous occasions were told by Jesus, who, reminder, is God, actual God in human form, were told by him, no, you actually don't have it figured out. And you're wrong about a lot of stuff. 
They had a hard time dealing with that because of their pride. Pride is a big issue when it comes to this. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saved. Ooh, I'm a Christian. It's that, it's that little voice, that little voice that kind of creeps around the back of your head, and you might not think it consciously, but it whispers to you, well, you're saved, you're a Christian, so you, well, you know better. You know even better than these other Christians, and especially better than these unsaved uh, people, these pagans. You know better. You are better. You're a Christian. Now, of course, like I said, you probably have not really thought this consciously because what kind of a person would do that? But it's a thought that creeps in because we're inherently sinful, because it's something that we have to deal with as people that pride will attempt to creep its way into our brains and into our hearts. You can't let it. So you have to turn to a higher power. But before uh, we move on to that, I I, want to bring us to the next key word uh, in, in this phrase. So we talked about, you know, being a nonconformist. That was the first, uh, kind of the first point. And uh, the second one, I don't know how many of you guys are going to get this reference, uh, so I'll just throw up a picture of it. See, um, more than meets the eye there, uh, it's supposed to be an S on it, I, there's a typo. That's a reference to, um, uh, to a cartoon series and a toy line and now a blockbuster movie franchise called Transformers. Um, some of you are wondering, what does this actually have to do with the scripture besides using the word transform? The answer is, I just wanted to put up a picture of Optimus Prime in front of a dinosaur robot in a Sunday morning sermon just to say I could. I'm kidding. It's a visual to get your mind into the idea of transforming because see, these guys, uh, these robots, I guess, they were an alien robot race in the, in the cartoon and they would uh, hide from humans while on Earth by transforming. That dude... Uh, turns into a semi, like this big tricked out blue semi with like flames on it. It's so cool. But they would transform into a completely different shape. That does not look like a truck. Then he would transform and he would be a truck. Very simple. Transformation. Uh, The word specifically though uh, used here, which again, a reminder, in case you never thought about it, the Bible was not written in English. Uh, It was written in a different part of the world that did not speak English at that time. We had to translate it in this part Translated from an uh, old version of Greek, the Greek language called Koine Greek, which we don't, they don't use over there anymore. But the original word um, is right there. So thankfully, uh, I think that clears everything up. Um, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, no, obviously not. Uh, some of you maybe can like sort of make out what that says, but here, here's a translation. Boom! That's better, right? That's totally a word in English. No, it's not. Hey, now you might recognize this word. The word used there is metamorphuste, I think is how you pronounce it, but that doesn't matter because it's a dead language. The word that it translates to is metamorphosis, which might be a familiar word to some of y'all. It was a word that I learned uh, at a very young age, I think in elementary school, actually. Uh, I learned it in reference to, well... I got an, uh, let's see the next picture. This is usually what you think of if you think of metamorphosis. Like this adorable little, oh, this a little, little caterpillar, and then it, it turns into this beautiful, this big, beautiful, colorful butterfly, and it's magnificent. And when you think of being transformed as a Christian, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Maybe that's what you think of. You know, there's a, a verse, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 5.17, you know, it says that, um, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That, that, we usually kind of, when we hear things like that, think of something like this, this big, beautiful transition. But I think it's more accurate and a little more healthy to our uh, relationship with God to think um, of a different species, actually. Uh, isn't that adorable? Look at that. What a cute little... No, can't... Can't lie in church. That's not cute. That's a disgusting little creature called a mealworm, um, which um, is what we used in elementary school. See, in, in elementary school, I don't know if it was just that caterpillars were more expensive to buy in bulk, but when they wanted us to, I don't know, I've never tried, but when they wanted us to experience firsthand what metamorphosis looked like and you know have like a hands-on project with it, they didn't get us caterpillars. They got us these little mealworms, which, by the way, I discovered... Uh, fairly quickly, are not called that because you're supposed to eat them, which is a bit misleading, especially to an elementary schooler. I feel like you should just call it something else. But they gave us these. We had, I think, groups of three for each mealworm, and we put them in this little film canister. Now, kids, a film canister is... No, I'm not going to go, but it's a little, little, little 
plastic thing. We would fill it up halfway with oatmeal because that's what they eat. That's why. Just put it together. Anyway, they eat oatmeal. You put it in there, and they're just a little, little happy little mealworm just, just chilling out in their little oatmeal jacuzzi or whatever. It's not, but there's no jets. Why would I call it a jacuzzi? That makes no sense. Point is, you put them in there, and we're, we would wait. Uh, we would kind of draw sketches of them. I don't remember what all they made us do, but over time, eventually that thing uh, kind of got a little crusty shell around it, and it looked different. Uh, we were looking for a cocoon, but eventually, out of that uh, pupa, is what that's called, popped this thing. You know, when all you know of me- the word metamorphosis is that, oh, that's what happens when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. You're thinking, all right, what's this mealworm going to be? Some kind of sweet moth? Or like a different kind of, but no, no, we get a beetle. The old has gone, the new has come, and it's a, it's a beetle, people, come on. Why, what? I was disappointed, needless to say. I was disappointed, I was expecting much more. Um, and that's, that the second half of that sentence is why I was disappointed. I was expecting much more. My expectations were so high, all I knew about metamorphosis was that the thing comes out the other end looking way cooler. That does not look cool, that's boring. It's just a beetle, and it can't even fly. It has wings, I've come to learn, but they're fused together, so they're entirely pointless. This is not what a small child, especially a little boy, wants to find. Oh, cool, it transformed into an awesome beetle. Cool, I guess I'll throw it at a girl. Whatever. Don't throw it. Oh, the kids are gone. You all know. Anyway, I don't want to be a bad influence. I was disappointed because of the expectations that had been uh, formed in my mind. And I think a lot of us can experience this when it comes to uh, our Christian lives. You know, maybe everything you had heard about becoming a Christian was about oh, becoming this entirely new creation at the end of it. And you're going to have this, you know, bright lights, chorus of angels, road to Damascus kind of hallelujah conversion experience. And then when you don't, what do you do? When you've come out the other side, when, when you've given your life to Christ and it says you, know, you should be a new creation and you're not a butterfly, you just, you're a beetle. What do you do? Well, especially when you think, I was supposed to become this grandiose thing. I, I, I was supposed to be this ideal Christian and I'm, I'm not. And everyone, everyone's going to think that I was supposed to be because that's what society tells me. That's what Christian culture in many ways tells me. is so, so I have to keep up appearances. And that, again, this comes from pride. And it leads to a very toxic kind of spirituality and a very toxic kind of religion where we will essentially put on airs, keep up appearances to make people think we became that butterfly. We'll paste a couple of real pretty wings on the back of our black shells and act like we've got it all put together, all figured out. Because we were supposed to by now. You know, we were supposed to be this changed, beautiful thing, but we're not. Well, you are. You just, you have to be more realistic about your expectations, which sounds cynical and pessimistic, but stay with me because it's not. Because here's the thing. That, that beetle, okay, is capable of way more than that mealworm, okay? You ever seen a mealworm try to get from point A to point B? They look like idiots. It's completely ridiculous. They're squirming around. They're hardly accomplishing anything, especially if they're on, like, loose ground. They're just kind of rolling and slipping in it. It's, it's embarrassing, quite frankly. But if you, a beetle, man, a beetle has six whole legs, man. Look at the size of those legs. A beetle wants to get from one place to another. It gets there. Darn it. And they're bigger, and they're not quite as appealing prey for... Birds, you know, they're not quite as easy to catch. There's a whole lot more that this beetle can do and can accomplish than this mealworm. It, and frankly, even though I was disappointed that it was not a butterfly or an awesome moth, it still looks a lot more appealing than a mealworm. I would rather look at a picture of a beetle than look at a picture of a mealworm because mealworms are gross. They look like little grubs, little maggoty things. I don't want to look at it. This beetle has so much on that mealworm. It is a new creature. It's not a mealworm anymore. It is something completely different, completely new, and way better. So, why be disappointed? There's still plenty to experience here. When you're disappointed that you haven't become something greater than what you had expected, it's again because of pride. We need to be humble 
We need to exercise humility when it comes to the kind of person, the kind of Christian that God makes us into because he's going to make us into the kind of person that we need to be at that particular time. And then when he wants us to become another new creation, he'll keep changing us into another new thing and another new thing when it's time. To think that we should be this perfect, ideal Christian immediately upon being saved is not only not biblical, it's basically saying, well, I know better than God, so get with the program, God. Does anybody else see how ridiculous that sounds? Because it does. Humility is important. We see it mentioned again and again in the Bible. First Timothy 1.15, I think I've got that up there. I'm just going to kind of go through these. Um, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus, or Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. Now, who's I in this? Well, it's Paul again. Now, Paul, just so you know, wrote, I'm going to say most of the New Testament. Definitely most of the New Testament that's not the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A ton of the books of the New Testament are letters written by Paul. And we, and we, we consider that scripture. Um, Catholics and Orthodox Christianity view him as a saint. Uh, he pioneered the idea of, of missions as we see it today. Paul was a huge driving force in getting the early church off its feet and spreading the word of God and the gospel of Christ. He was a huge part of it. He's a very important man in Christianity and a very devout Christian from what we can tell. And here he is saying, I'm actually the worst sinner. He's being humble and being realistic, but it never stopped him from pushing forward and doing exactly what he knew God wanted him to do, what God was asking him to do. Not once did his humility ever become pessimism or cynicism. It was realism. He says, I know what I am. I know that I'm prone to sin. I know that the things that I do, I hate to do, and the things I want to do, I don't do. I don't get what's up with me sometimes, but I know what I am, and I know that I need to give it over to God and not my own pride if I'm going to move beyond that. If I'm going to become more like God, closer to God, I can't pretend to be some saint. That's not what I am. I'm a person who is flawed and will sin again, and I'm just giving that over to God. I'm being realistic about it. And Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing out of rivalry or empty conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. That's a whole sermon by itself. I'm not going to get into it. But that's humility, considering others more important than yourself. Man, is that counterintuitive. <laughs> that's something you've got to try to do. And uh, Romans 12, verse 3, which you might recognize as the verse right after the verse we're focusing on today. For through the grace given me, this is Paul again, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each measure of faith. And that I read from a different translation you know, than you see up there, but um, that last part, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Um, people are going to be at different places in their walk with God at different times. Paul, in a different place, I think in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, I didn't look up this part, but he goes uh, on a bit of a not, a, not a rant, but he, he talks for a bit about uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols. I'm not going to get too into it, um, but there were certain Christians at the time who would eat meat that had been sacrificed to false gods because they'd sacrifice the animal and the god doesn't come down and get it because he's not real, the god they would sacrifice it to, and so they would sell that meat at the market. And some Christians would just buy it and eat it, but like, what, it's meat? Like, what? I don't, that god's not real, so like, what am I... Why should I be concerned? Other Christians, though, who maybe came out of that pagan uh, lifestyle would know that that's been sacrificed to idols and like, I can't have a part of that. I need to separate myself from this. What are you doing? Why would you, why would you eat meat sacrificed to idols? And they'd say, well, why wouldn't you? And then Paul got into it and said, guys, you, you don't think you should eat meat sacrificed to idols? All right, don't. Hey, you think that it's cool for you to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Your conscience doesn't bother you about it? Go ahead. This is a debatable thing. There's no specific word on this. It's about your conscience and where you are with Christ. Now, they had been telling each other. This wasn't just because it was like, well, what do we do? Please tell us. We're having a civil 
uh, disagreement about this. It was because they were telling each other, no, you're doing it wrong. No, you're doing it wrong. I know what's best. Well, I'm a Christian. Well, so am I. How old would that get? How quickly? And Paul was getting old to Paul too, so he put a stop to it. Look, don't be so prideful as to think you know exactly where someone else is in their walk with God. How dare you? Why would you do that? Focus on your walk with God. Support them in their walk. Tell them what you know is true. And grow together. Learn from each other. Be realistic about who you are as a follower of Christ. So that means being humble, but it also means realizing the magnitude of the gift that God has given you. And that kind of leads me into uh, the third key word here in this uh, in this verse, we, we first we talked about not conforming, uh, and then we talked about uh, transforming, and then this this third thing uh, he says here, and I'm just going to read the verse again, Romans twelve two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing. That's what we're going we're to talk about here. Renewing again, the word used here in the Greek. I'm not going to get super into it and do the whole thing with the letters. You saw that gag earlier. It won't be funny again. The point is, this was in another language, and the word used here in its most basic sense for renew means to change. It's a change. Usually a pretty drastic change. Because the word new is in there for a reason. It's, it's, it's being, you know, something being made new, made again, renewed, changed. And what does Paul say? Paul says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The changing of your mind. Now this may come as a shock, I hope it doesn't, Um, but as it turns out, a Christian can change their mind. What? Yeah, Christians can change their mind. God doesn't change his mind. We can change our mind. Because uh, hands up, everyone who's never once been wrong. Sorry, I had my hand up for a second there. That's not. I, I've been wrong. If I were to say that I haven't, that would have been wrong by itself. And that's a paradox. And we don't want to get into logical paradoxes this morning. We don't have the time. But you've all been wrong. We've all been wrong. Every single person who has ever been born uh, has probably been wrong. Um, I'm not sure how a baby could be wrong about something, but uh, I don't know, they probably have. Who knows? Um, who knows what goes on in those brains, man? Not me. They can't talk. I don't trust them. Point is, <laughs> I trust babies. The point is that <clears throat> changing your mind is not indicative of having a weak faith. In fact, in many cases, it's indicative of how strong your faith is because do you realize the amount of faith in God it takes to say, God, it appears that I was wrong about something. I want you to show me how I was wrong and show me how to be right. Because we put so much faith in our own minds, in our own, you know, reasoning. We often tend to lean on our own understanding. Uh, Funny thing, there's a whole verse explicitly about not doing that. But we get so wrapped up in in ourselves and we, we know what we know, you know? I know. I forget who I was talking to, so I can't credit them. But I was talking with somebody one time who brought this this idea uh, to mind that you always think you're right. In the present tense, you always think you're right. Because think about it, when you find out that you were wrong about something, notice how I use the word were wrong, past tense. As soon as you realize you were wrong, well, you know you were wrong, so now you're right again. You can look back and say, I was wrong about this, 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 and this. But in the present, you think you're right about everything. That sounds like an insult to somebody. Well, you think you're right about everything. Yeah, so do you. Every single one of us thinks we're right about everything right now. We may find out later that we were wrong. But we are so, that's how in our own heads we get. And how difficult and how much faith it takes to be willing to accept from God the fact that I was wrong about a thing. And you think with how often it happens, we would be used to it by now. We never get used to it. Um, yeah, that's... When, when you, the, the, let's talk about moments again. When, when you think about that moment when you first decided to follow Christ, you know, if you have that moment, 
Um, I'm not saying it's important not to mark it, because it's actually, I think it's very important to mark certain landmarks in your life as you go through your life, because then you can look back and say, this is when I realized this thing, or this is when I changed my life in this way. And you can see how you've been progressing as a person and as a Christian and as somebody who is a child of God, walking with him and growing closer to him. You can see that progression. You can learn from the things you've done in the past. I'm not saying to not uh, capture moments and look back at and use moments. Moments can be very important, very helpful to us. But what I am saying is you can't treat any moment, the moment of salvation or any other moment, like it was this, this be-all, end-all, I'm saved and that's that, this all-important moment uh, in my life. You, you, you can't treat it that way because, again, you begin to romanticize it. And, again, it's only the beginning. Jesus told Nicodemus, um, he, he had this whole conversation with Nicodemus, who was one of those Pharisees, in case you weren't aware, it's one of the Pharisees I'm talking about who thought they had it all together, very religious, wore all the right stuff. But Nicodemus heard some stuff that Jesus had said and came to talk to Jesus late at night so the other Pharisees didn't see him. Pride, again, very high school, you know. I don't want them seeing me hanging out with this guy. But he comes late at night to Jesus and he, he wants to talk to him about some of the stuff that he heard him say. One of the things Jesus tells Nicodemus is he needs to be born again. Now, that's a phrase you've probably heard, especially if you're in a... Uh, church culture, and have spent a lot of time in it. Born again. Nicodemus, of course, takes that at face value and says, that's patently ridiculous, Jesus. A man cannot be born after he is already old. I don't think you understand how being born works. And Jesus, you know, basically explains to Nicodemus the concept of metaphors, but he explains what he really meant, and it's a spiritual rebirth. Uh, Last time I checked... Being born was the beginning of a growing and maturing process. And this is a metaphor that continues throughout the Bible. Uh, let me see where, in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews uh, tells his readers that, you know what, by now, uh, you should be eating solid food. Instead, you're still, you're still on milk, guys. And this is a metaphor for uh, teaching and learning and, and growing in Christ. He said, basically, by now, you should be able to teach other people. You should be, you know, that's the solid food. When a baby graduates to eat chewing on solid food. But you're still, you're still drinking milk back here. You guys are old enough. You should be teaching, you know, old enough in Christ, mature enough. You should be mature enough by this point. But you haven't. You've refused to mature. You haven't changed once since you were born again. If a person refuses to mature... They, they usually have a hard time finding a place in society, finding success in life. You have to mature as you age. And when you're born again, it's, it's, it's the same thing. As a baby, I had a lot of ideas about how the world worked. Couldn't tell you what they were. It was a very long time ago. But what I can tell you is probably most of them were wrong. When I was newly saved, you know, when I first gave my life to Christ, I had a lot of ideas about how God worked. And a lot of them were wrong. I can't hold on to that moment and romanticize it, or any moment. when I Oh, I finally found out that I was wrong about this big thing. I'm going to hold on to that forever, and I can never be wrong about it ever again, because that's how smart I am. Thank you, God, for making me so smart. Any moment, any moment you can't do that with. Renew is also a word. Um, I feel like I'm dating myself with a lot of these references, but... Um, it's also a word we use to refer to, to things uh, that we used to have called magazines. This is what they look like, magazines. Um, you may be familiar with them. Now, magazines, obviously. They, you would subscribe to a magazine. You'd sign up and say, I would like to receive this magazine every month or twice a month or however often the, that particular magazine gets issued. And then you would, you would receive them. And then usually once a year, they would send you a little card in one of the magazines saying, hey, your subscription is about to run out, but if you renew it, you can keep getting more magazines. Very standard concept, renewal. You had to do it if you wanted to keep getting the magazines. Which, again, I really don't know why you would, because like 90% of those things is just ads for perfume for whatever reason. I don't know why. I've never really been sure what the appeal of magazines is, but... 
Magazines are, is, are. Grammar. Anyway, you would have to renew if you wanted to keep getting magazines. And it was something you would have to keep doing. You can't just renew once and then they give you magazines forever. And that's kind of the context that Paul is giving us this in. The book of Romans is not just about coming to Christ. The book of Romans, if you look through it in its context and understand it, is about a continuing life in Christ. Maintaining that walk and maintaining that closeness with God and bringing yourself even closer to him, becoming more and more like him. It's not just about a one-time event or moment. This is about your life. This is about an ongoing process. And to renew your mind, to allow God to renew your mind, to change it, it's going to have to be a pretty frequent thing. You don't just let God change you once and say, I'm good. You, you don't do that. Uh, Paul allowed God to change him once at the road to Damascus, and he kept changing him. Again and again he would change him. Those of you um, who have been Christians for a while, you probably know this. You've probably changed a bunch of times. And you have to be willing to accept that change when God tells you you need to change. Not when culture or a popular movement within the church or popular uh, movement within your society tells you that it's time to change something. No. When God, consistently with Scripture and how you have experienced him and how you know him and how his Holy Spirit is guiding your conscience, tells you it's time to change, you have to be willing and open to accept that change and let him change you and let him change your mind and transform you as a person. And it's hard. It seems like a very straightforward idea, but when you get to it, you realize it's kind of hard. Because who wants to change? Change is not... I, I, I'm moving so I'm moving this week, actually. Um, don't worry, I'll still be here. I'll actually be closer to the church, I think. No, farther away. Anyway, I'm moving two blocks away. Point is, I am looking forward to being in my new house. I really am. It's a sweet house. Comes free with a hot tub. Not bragging. Just very excited. Um, also, you don't tell people you have a hot tub, man. Why would I do that? That's like telling people you have a truck. <sighs> well, anyway, you're all invited. Point is, I'm very excited to be in the new house with all my furniture set up and all my books on the shelves and all my rooms furnished and my hot tub running. I'm not super looking forward to like actually picking up all those boxes and putting them in uh, my truck and then driving them over and picking them up again, putting them down, opening them. It's already so many steps at this point in the process. I haven't even gotten to putting things away yet, and there's like five steps involved. Man, that's work. I don't want to do that. I could hire somebody to do it, but I'm not going to. Because I, still, I see the value in doing the work, in putting the effort in, in getting up and, and, and going through the process of change. You can't just be changed. You've got to change there's a process to get there, and you have to allow God to do that. You have to be willing to put the effort into becoming the person that God has in store for you to become. It's not just a let God change me. There we go. I leveled up. I'm good. It's not how it works. Yeah, you're going to learn. The more you walk with God, the more you're going you're gonna to learn, and that means the more you're going to change. And you're going to change your mind. And you're going to change your heart. You're going to change some of the things you believe, and you know what? It turns out that's okay. The right kind of change is okay and beyond okay. You're supposed to change. Don't fear it. Uh, Paul, again, back to Paul. You know when he was the most sure that he had it all put together? It was back when he was a Pharisee. Um... Some of you may know this. When he was a Pharisee, this was shortly after um, Jesus had come and, and, and done his ministry on earth and preached and taught and you know, gathered his disciples and went into Jerusalem, was persecuted, was beaten, was executed and rose again from the dead and then sent his disciples out to start the church. Paul, during this time, was one of those Pharisees. You know, the dudes who knew what was up. The conformists, the very religious conformists. He was one of them, and he was so sure of himself. He was, in fact, so sure of himself being right and being on the right track that he was willing to round up Christians and just kill them 
which is weird to me because if he's so into the Jewish law, I feel like Ten Commandments, I mean, it's right there, guys. The don't kill one. It's, it's one of the big ones. You don't murder people, but whatever. Paul, well, he, he was sure of himself. He had it all figured out. You've got to be pretty sure of yourself to kill somebody. Let me tell you. Not that I've, killed any, I've, I've never killed anyone, despite what you may have heard. But, besides maybe in video games. But he was so sure of himself that he was willing to kill. And that he was willing to, to, to base his whole life around how right he was about God and about religion and about his faith. But then, after his conversion experience, after God got a hold of him, after Jesus spoke to him on the, on the road to Damascus, you see a little bit of a, what you might call self-doubt in some of his words. You know, uh, says, what a wretched man I am. That, that part earlier where, where he says, uh, I'm, I'm the worst sinner. The worst sinner. And another point where he says, I don't do the things I want to do. You know, good things. And the things I, I don't want to do, bad things, sin. I do them. Why? Because ah, I'm messed up, man. All that, all that humbleness, that humility... And that willingness to, to be changed by God and to admit himself as being wrong and a flawed human came after he realized, after he was changed, after God renewed his mind and transformed him into a new creature who was still kind of, by the way, a little off-putting. He, if you look at some of the words he uses, I mean, in the book of Galatians, he's a little rude to the Galatians right at the beginning there. He opens it up with like, hey, greetings, hope you're doing well, so are you stupid or what? That's, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically sa- he says, I can't believe you're so easily uh, bewitched by these, these false teachers among you. All right, come on, people. He still had some, some ways to go. You know, he was a little abrasive, but he knew that. He was humble and he was realistic. You know, we let ourselves uh, easily to dwell in that moment of salvation. We allow ourselves to um, really experience sort of a, a Christian midlife crisis if you will. Uh, we, we take the picture, you know, we snap a little selfie of ourselves at the moment of salvation, and we say, or, you know, we, we t- look at that picture, and we say, man, that sure was a great moment. That sure was a great time. You know, just like somebody having a midlife crisis will look back at a picture of themselves in, in college or high school and say, wow. It's like a picture of them jet skiing or something, and they'll say, wow, look at that fun I was having. I was really living life back then. I got to recapture that. We do that too. We look back and we say, I got to recapture that. I got to hold on to how I was when I was saved because that was such a magical, beautiful moment. I need to hold on to it. And then we spend our effort trying to recapture that feeling and live in, in frankly, a, a, an obviously desperate self deception because that moment is gone. It was important and it began something, but it's gone. Instead of looking at it and trying to hold on to it and, and recapture that feeling, what we ought to do is look down and, and say, look how far God has taken me since then. I can't wait to see how different I look even further down the road. Um, I don't know if photo albums are really still a thing anymore, if people still do photo albums, but um, my parents did, and um, some people are into scrapbooking. But anyone who's, who's had kids... Um, probably has experienced this, knows, you know, that feeling of looking back through pictures, whether it's a photo album or on Facebook or whatever, looking back through pictures of your child and seeing them grow through the years. And in some cases, start to look more and more like you, you know, when you have that family resemblance and they, it starts to really come out as they, start to, as they grow and they change. And, and I, I really get the impression from his word that, that God wants that same thing with us. He wants to be able to look through our lives, and see us changing, see us early when we were first born again, and, and see us progressing and changing and looking completely different. I don't look anything like my baby picture, guys. I, I mean, I'm getting there. That My hair is slowly reverting to the state of how it was when I was born. I don't like to talk about it, but I look a lot different. I don't look anything like I did. And God wants to look back and say, look, look at how, what, how you looked when you were first newly born, when you were first born again. And now look at you. Look how different you look and how, look how much more like me you look. I think God wants that for us. I really do. But we have to be willing to let him change us. It's not something he's going to force on us. 
We have to let him change us, and we have to put in the work to change. We have to do away with our desire to conform, you know, let go of those worldly patterns that we cling to so desperately, like a security blanket or a rock in the middle of a river. And we have to be realistic and willing to admit that we are probably wrong about some things right now. All of us are probably wrong about something right now. Just let that sink in for a second. You'll find out what it is eventually. I don't know what it is, but we're all wrong about something right now. That's, that's a humbling thought if ever there was one. And we have to be realistic about the transformation that's going to take place in our lives. Get that picture of the butterfly out of your head, and when you transform, look at what's new and use that. Be thankful to God for that and be excited about the next stage. Because, I mean, the, the beetle and butterfly metaphor breaks down when you realize they only do that once. But God has got a lot of transformations in mind for every single one of us, regardless of how uh, old we are physically, how old we are spiritually, how long ago we were born again, and how long ago we were physically born. doesn't matter. He's still got all kinds of transformations in store. And I think it would do us well to be as excited about them as he is. That's what I got. Um, we're going to pray uh, as the worship team comes up. God, I just um, thank you for, uh, well, leaving us your word and, and preserving that for us, God, that we can get into it and, and uh, be changed by it. And I also uh, want to thank you for just... Uh, how much you change us. I, I thank you, and I, I pray that we would have the willingness of heart to, to be changed in our hearts and to have our minds changed by you and to be renewed. I pray that we would go out from here having been changed and then, and, and then experience more and just be excited about it. God, we are excited about what you have in store for us the kind of person you have in store for us to be. We, we want to see it, and God, above all else, above all of this, above ourselves especially, we want you to be given credit for who and what you truly are and for how much you love us and for just the infinite size and scope of your power and your nature. So we thank you for that, and in your name, amen.